Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast. Uh, based off Twitter feeds, um, people are asking me about my thinking of option versus null and you know Java versus V8 startup time. So I'll do option and null first because I think it's actually pretty interesting. I have something to say. There's not a whole lot I can add on the whole Java V8 startup time thing. So what do you mean by option versus null? Well, uh, maybe or just or uh, not null annotations. It's what do you do in a language which doesn't, which has a distinguished null type, but doesn't have a distinguished null uh, uh, typing system? And so the issue is basically you have a C program, it has pointers, pointers have a null. Why do nulls exist in the first place? What's the deal there? Well, obviously, the, the, there's you know, pointers pre-exist all typing systems. They were around the very first machines and they were just a an address of another place where some other piece of data was stored in memory and they were convenient to pass around. And there was a place where you had a value which was supposed to be a pointer but turned out to be junk and this caused you know, your program to overwrite some other parts of memory. So the hardware and the OS guys got together and came up with, a, you know, a segmentation system. And, and that let you have programs that were independent from each other and a wild pointer couldn't crush a different one. And so you could run some test thing and some, you know, some particular window or some particular, I'm sorry, command shell. And your editor wouldn't get crushed by it and, you know, have to reboot everything and lose your program or whatever. But this gave, came around to, you know, segmentation violation. And uh, you know, it turns into a seg v. And as a common case, you have the notion of a missing value for a pointer, and people would use null all zeros because it's a convenient, easy thing to have, and you can test for it in one instruction in hardware. Even back in the dawn of time, you know, whatever minimal clock cycles will check check for zeros. All great. People love the concept of a missing value that was cheap and easy to carry around, took an extra space, took no time to test. It was a, it was a good thing. But as programs get big and complicated, tracking when a value is expected to be there and when a value is allowed to not be there becomes more complicated. And this notion of a missing value, you know, if you're in the data science world, um, it matters a lot and, you do, and, and it matters on things that are not pointers. But programmers in general have lived with a missing value notion in pointers since they first started programming. So languages finally showed up with you know, support for saying, I declare at this point in the program, this value should never be missing, or it could be missing, or it must be missing, or various variations in between, and to help you catch your bugs when you weren't expecting a missing value. You know, fast forward 20 years, you come to Java. Java didn't pick up the null, not nullness goodness. It was still a notion people were floating around and playing with. Um, and then so you got a lot of null pointer bugs in your code. And later people said, hey, we have this annotations concept specifically in part to handle nulls. So let's go add not null and nullness and nullable annotations everywhere. And they're pretty bulky. And then a lot of other languages came along in the in-between the in and said, let's do something better with null. And it's really this notion of a missing or a not a missing. So we'll call it um, optional, it's an option type if you're Scala maybe, if you're an Elm, it's a maybe or a just. I've seen maybe and just in other languages as well. <clears throat> the problem with these things is they're all pretty darn bulky. And you know the annotation's only useful if you're actually gonna use it. And if the program overhead becomes too much, you just won't bother. Colin here maybe got this right. Um, brevity is important. You need to have very short, small uh, indicators to say nullness is allowed or not allowed, or here I'm gonna you know, handle null, and if it's null, do this, else do that. And then you know, chain together uh, nullness so if any one of the leading parts are, are null, the answer comes back, for instance, as null. 
um, else you finally do something useful at the end. And that's a whole notion, by the way, what to do with a missing value if you have 27 steps along the way and you need these 27 things if any one of them is missing. Um, the answer is missing, and that's a fine solution, but you end up chaining parts together, and you want that chaining to look and be convenient to use and write. Here in C code, you would just say if pointer, and then that was an existence test right by itself. Same as in Python. Java got this wrong. You have to say if pointer equal equal null or unequal null, and the extra unequal null was just overhead that you had to type when everyone knew there was an, an easy test for existence or not or true or falsiness if you're in the Python world you know I think Java just screwed this up um, and in the case of the maybes and the just I think Elm screwed up uh, mixing array index out of bounds with this maybe thing if you do an array.get and you're out of bounds you get a uh, you get a maybe answer back so it's you know it's missing if you're out of bounds and I think it should have done something else there because then you can't have arrays of uh, values that are not null and do an array that get and get a value back instead you might get a null back because you have to do a range check and usually you expect to have values missing and so it's common to have support for that but array index out of bounds no, you usually that's a real bug and you should just crash. And you know, you know, maybe the right answer I think for Elm is have some sort of array that get whose failure mode is same as calling debug.crash. Your program's dead now. Okay, let me give you guys a war story about nullness handling um, because it kind of has some deep uh, connotations here. So, you know, I'm, I'm hacking this big complicated program. This was H2O at the time, but the same thing happened to me a couple times over the years. So I've picked an invariant about how I'm going to handle nulls in a particular region of code. The regions had a lot of nullness issues in the past, so I've done a big, uh, um, you know, architectural job on being the, the lead tech lead and architect here, and I said, in this region, there will be no nulls for the following things, and I'll null check all around the edges of the region and do my null handling there. But when you get into the core guts, you can expect to have all the values be present already, and you don't have to deal with missing. No nulls in that region. So I've picked my invariant, and then I code to it. And around the edges, I either assert the values present, or I handle the not nullness property, and it causes some people to think through, oh yeah, what about, and we handle all these cases and get it good and working. Lots of comments around the edges about handle, handle null, and it comments is, you know, hey, there's no nulls in this region. In the bulk of the core area where the hard work's done, there aren't any comments or asserts because no nulls are possible. There's just the hard work you're trying to do. Um, and there's no bulk then in the area, and it, the code is clean and tight and well understandable. This code lives and works great for maybe about a year with no one messing with it, and it's all fine. And some junior guy comes along and gets his notion in his noggin that says, what if a null happens here? And he adds some sort of localized null check in the core region. Of course, the code can't execute, and the null check would do something not sensible in any case because there is no recovery here because you, all recovery has happened elsewhere already. So a little while later, a slightly less junior guy sees that null check and says, oh my god, lots of nearby code doesn't have any null handling. We need to handle lots of null checks in here. And he throws null checks all over this core region and adds all these broken null pointer exception handling for things that just can't happen. And then there's a code review and somebody pokes and says, well, this won't actually solve the problem because if you get a null here, you're broken here. And if you get a null here, you're broken there. And a null here, you're broken, broken, broken. And people are like, well, how did this ever work? And finally, I catch wind and I join the code review and say, oh, no, this is all wrong. And we start looking. I have to unwind five Git pushes stretching over a couple weeks. And there's a long education. No nulls are possible here. No null checks needed. 
And before you add a null check and well-running stable code that's not been touched in a year, widen your view before you assume the code is just suddenly busted, because maybe it was correct all along. And if you add null pointer exception handling code, if you had any error handling code, you better add a unit check to test the code, because if you can't prove that the code, that the error recovery recovers, almost surely it does not. Error handling checks are the 99% never executed code, and they never actually recover anything because they never get executed, no one ever tests it, and never thinks through, hey, what happens to this random crappy thing? Well, usually if the random crappy thing happens, you're dead, dead, dead. But if it can happen, you put in robust error handling and you know J unit checks, or you would have never gotten there. Okay, fine. And then the next thing is simply, you know, if there were nulls were possible here, just immediately start looking around at what else would have busted long ago. And don't just assume that it somehow magically worked. So, you know, the moral for me was it was not sufficient to have lots of comments around the edges of the perimeter of the area. I had to have comments in the center of the area and all throughout that said, this is the invariant. Nulls are not allowed here and they were caught somewhere else. The code wasn't changing. No one was hacking on it. There was no uh, uh, issues with having NPEs unfortunately happening in this code. It was all well and stable. It was just a do-gooder came, jumped in and said, hey, let's add a null check that then added more and added more and added more and until somebody popped up and said, wait a second, there's something wrong in a bigger picture. I think it means we really do need to have some sort of annotations to express our invariants in a more general way. And the type system is the best way to do it. And asserts are kind of a second best way. And comments are kind of what you end up with when you can't reasonably write the assert. And if you don't write them, then the next guy that comes along may not get it. So, you know, this brings me into another topic here, which is sort of the general observation about types. You know, you've heard the statement, you know, strong types are for weak minds until the code gets bigger than what your mind can hold. And then the code gets bigger than what all the minds can hold. And strong typing just allows better code base scaling, more, more people over a longer period of time because it expresses directly in the code in sort of a, in, in a well-understood way what is trying to be accomplished. And asserts go most the way there in the sense that they express in the code something that'll stop you if you happen to hit it at runtime, but it is a comment in the code that's expected to pass every time you execute it. So it's stronger than a comment because a comment is just some piece of text that could be ignored and often is. When assert, when you're debugging some other bug and you see the assert, you know that assert must have passed or you've been caught there already. Therefore, this invariant was holding at that time. Therefore, some implication happens. It means you're bugged somewhere else. So asserts beat you know, comments. Typing beats assert. I would rather have a stronger type system than a weaker one. And adding null, not null testing into the type system, sorry, not null testing into the type system beats not having it, in my opinion. And it should apply to many other things I'd love to put into type systems. You know, first class functions and true polymorphism beat generic Java generics by, uh, you know, hands down. I loved Elm's, you know, type system in that way. However, uh, you know, so we go out, you know, physical math, like, um, uh, you know, no, no more losing Mars missions because you're mixing up yards and meters. There's, you know, just wouldn't compile if you're trying to mix the wrong kinds of physical unit math. There's lots of things you would like, or I would like to see thrown into type systems, including things about performance, um, you know, a, a big O notation on, on, you know, the code you're executing in some hot place, 
or you know, Russ went a long way for, for uh, management of lifetimes and ponies going a long way for management of multi-threaded uh, behaviors. You know, Eiffel's pre and post asserts are also in that realm. That there's, there's something to be done in type systems, yet to be done in type systems, that needs to go mainstream that we're all sort of still uh, you know, fiddling around with. I think there's a new crop of languages coming up. Java's had a, a good solid run. I'm ready for a new language to show up and I expect it to have a strong type system which would include nulls but I hope it includes lots of other things too. Okay with that let me pivot over to, to startup time in V8 um, and let me first caveat by saying I've never looked at the V8 code, I've never compiled it, I've never written a JavaScript implementation. Um, I did fight hard in the Java slow startup wars and in, in the beginning, you know, Java, with the very beginning, Java was interpreted, and there was various kinds of people trying to compile it as it was starting to catch on. And I did that first JIT, and it wasn't so fast. It was pretty good, but it wasn't that fast. Um, and then I did some more hacks and improved and improved, and I got it faster. And then um, I got more requests for more optimizations because it led to faster running programs in the long time, in the long run. And the request for more optimizations was so strong that I would have this conversation with my manager over and over again, which was something like, oh my God, can't you make the JIT faster? It's slow, slow, and this, and this, and this. And we needed to do some more optimizations. And I would say every time, pick. Do you want you know faster JITing, faster startup, or do you want faster running total overall performance? And they would say, oh my God, we have to have faster startup, we have to have faster startup, but we want to win all the benchmarks. So every time, it was, you know, better optimizations. And we go back and forth on the execution time of the compiler, but it definitely slowed down over time as it produced better and better code. And then multi-core came out. And it wasn't too much longer later when we started running the compiler on those background extra cores you had. And suddenly the compiler got fast again by simply being running in the background. And these days, you know, there are tons of cores. The jitting all happens in the background and it all happens pretty quickly. And, and I think actually the default now is you get multiple tiers. There's a faster startup tier, which is the, you know, the, the good compiler that's been all optimizations turned off and does a, a dumb quick job. And, and so, you know, Java's execution being fast or slow was not due to, the, or, or startup time being slow is not due to the jitting. It hasn't been due to the jitting for a long time. It's been due to slow disk loads. It's giant libraries. The Java programs got big, got really, really big. Stupid things like millions of bytecodes run before you execute main. Millions before main? What the hell? Oh my god. So that's where the time goes. It's not in it's not in the jitting. It's in loading the giant piles of code. Alright. So let me pivot a little bit to JavaScript. Okay, JavaScript had a purpose in life, ha has a purpose in life, and that's rendering web pages. Hey, you got Node.js, you got all these other things. No, rendering web pages is the 99% solution there. That's a person waiting, really waiting for something to happen. Everyone's proud of how fast their, their JavaScript implementation is because that's what drives the end user experience for, for the web. And so people had this focus, remaining had this focus for a decade or more on good startup time for JavaScript. Different focus from Java's focus, Java's was peak performance on big server apps, not startup time. Different language rules, different goals, different outcomes. So there's some things we can talk about about speed between the two. Um, JavaScript has, uh, you know, has everything is a float or a double, everything's a double, I guess, for numerics. Java has true, you know, primitive math. 
the true primitive math really, really does bake down to single instructions, you know, true, you know, it's like asm.js got close, got baked down to the metal. Well, Java's been baking down to the metal for a freaking 20 odd years. And that's just a fast way to execute. It has stronger typing than JavaScript. And that means you get things like good alias analysis just for free. Like literally I do no aliasing analysis. I have a very strong alias analysis because of the good typing system. There's a better basic object model for speed. I'm not, I'm not claiming here very carefully a better basic object model for say programming. One of the fun good learnings of JavaScript is being able to easily try out new code to test and run and play with code. Um, having a REPL that sits there and works while you screw around with things. This leads to faster development of programs, which leads to faster turnaround time, which leads to more code of better kinds showing up, but maybe doesn't necessarily execute faster. You know, this is a Python problem. The object model got complicated, been complicated all along. Fun and easy and lightweight to program in as long as things are small and simple, things get big and complicated, you want types. Separately, that same fun, fast, easy programming model also leads to slower execution times in the ultimate peak when the best efforts made on both a JavaScript and a Java thing for the same kind of stuff. You can write Fortran style code in Java and you know C and Fortran style codes and get Fortran and C style speeds out. And I do it all the time, it's actually really easy. It actually looks like Java code. I just avoid using certain sort of common idioms which in Java turn out to cause you to get slow and oh my gosh, you run like you're a C compiler. You know, I don't, not a whole lot to say about startup time here. Um, in Java, it's all on the initial class library loads, which is all about generally, you know, cold start from disk. And oh, there's a little bit of jitting time, but it's not where the bulk of the time goes. Um, and then you're off into the races and very quickly, you know, within seconds, it, jitting's over with, it's done. You know, you're just like, oh my God, I have to have all the jitting done in JavaScript. You want the jitting done in the first like 100 millis because in 10th second a person can't really tell, but at one second they can really tell. And Java's probably over with in a couple seconds, not in one, and not in 100 millis. So it's a it's a different yeah, it's a different goal, it's a different outcome, different focus, different language. And that's it for today's podcast. And you know, may all your your web pages uh, have no null pointer exceptions. Thanks. Bye bye.